This is the Emergency Medical Minute, sponsored by Mile High Ambulance. The Emergency Medical Minute is excited to announce that we are now offering AMA, PRA, Category 1 credits via online course modules. To access these and for more information, visit our website at www.emergencymedicalminute.com backslash CME-courses or simply click on the link in our show notes and create an account. So I'm going to take a minute to talk a little bit about antibiotic choices in uh, pneumonia, specifically community-acquired pneumonia. Uh, I'm going to be drawing upon uh, the 2019 ATS, so American Thoracic Society, and the IDSA, which is the Infectious Disease Society of America, uh, guidelines, uh, which are generally considered the most relevant and up-to-date guidelines in terms of how we approach uh, pneumonia patient uh, antibiotic choice. So a couple of things. Uh, in general, we put patients into uh, two broad categories um, for community-acquired pneumonia patients, uh, patients that meet sort of outpatient criteria and sometimes you use clinical gestalt, sometimes you use uh, uh, decision algorithms like uh, port score. Uh, but uh, for our purposes here, we're gonna just say we have a patient who's an outpatient candidate for pneumonia versus a patient that's sort of sick enough to be hospitalized. So in terms of patients that are uh, outpatient candidates, the main distinction uh, we use to determine what type of antibiotics that patient requires uh, ends up being their underlying comorbidities, all right? Uh, so in a patient that's otherwise relatively healthy uh, with no significant comorbidities, and I'll talk about them, uh, the I, uh, ATS and I, uh, IDSA uh, guidelines suggest one of three antibiotics, and it's high-dose amoxicillin, doxycycline, uh, and sometimes uh, a macrolide like azithromycin. And they're generally all considered uh, adequate and appropriate. In patients that have immunocompromised, or in, in patients that have comorbidities, and that's defined here uh, as people that have any chronic uh, disease, like chronic lung disease, chronic heart disease, chronic kidney disease, known immunocompromised state, or like diabetes. Um, they include uh, alcoholism and asplenia here uh, as well. Uh, asplenia would be patients that uh, uh, perhaps had uh, a spleen removed uh, from trauma. Uh, uh, sickle cell patients who are uh, technically autosplenectomized uh, uh, and they're at risk for encapsulated organisms. Um, or, you know, sometimes uh, as part of like uh, lymphoma treatment, uh, splenectomy is done. Um, so those. The patients that have those types of comorbidities, uh, the sort of uh, treatment regimens have uh, changed significantly. And in general, it's augmentin uh, uh, or cephalosporin. In our setting here, most commonly you'll see providers using uh, ceftin uh, and either doxycycline or uh, macrolide. Notably, they still have uh, respiratory quinolones, things like levoquin, as uh, alternatives. Um, but increasingly, uh, I think most of the providers in our setting uh, are recognizing uh, that as long as there's therapeutic alternatives, we avoid sort of the complication. So it's dual treatment, dual antibiotics. Moving to the inpatient side, where patients are sick enough uh, to be hospitalized, uh, you know, the, the, the reason I circled it here is that there are certain patients that are at higher risk uh, for uh, uh, multi-drug resistant organisms, and that causes an expansion of antibiotic coverage if the patients are sick enough. 
It used to be if the patients were potentially uh, exposed to multidrug resistant uh, uh, things uh, uh, or organisms, so patients that had a hospitalization even within 90 days, patients that are uh, residents of long-term care facilities uh, uh, like nursing homes or SNFs, uh, even assisted care, people that have, are in the dialysis center, that those were all sort of risk factors. Increasingly, it was re uh, recognized in studies that those patients, when they were given extremely broad antibiotics, potentially did worse uh, because uh, they were you know, over-treated uh, in terms of the antibiotic spectrum that was necessary to treat their disease. So the, the point here being, when patients are admitted, the standard treatment, and that's what we see here all the time, is you know, macrolide like azithromycin and a third-generation cephalosporin. The things that are sort of multidrug resistant or atypical uh, pathogens, you know, generally the consideration there is wh whether or not you add vancomycin uh, to their regimen and whether or not you add anti-pseudomonal uh, coverage. And it ends up, if you look through this algorithm, basically, you know, if they're at risk, uh, then they've had a prior MRSA isolate uh, from their sputum or blood culture from uh, pneumonia or pseudomonas. So if they're at that high enough risk uh, that they've had uh, positive cultures in the past, then they get broader coverage. And then importantly, you know, even if they uh, have these risk factors like recent hospitalization, IV antibiotics, local risk factors, only when they're sick enough, uh, so severe inpatient pneumonia, so think ICU patients, uh, do you add coverage for Vanco, uh, or Vanco for MRSA, and then anti-pseudomonal coverage, typically with, you know, Zosin or Cefepime. So, you know, I circled these things up here because I think they really sort of give you a sense of, you know, if patients are outpatient candidates, if they have significant comorbidities, then they're treated different. And if they're inpatient, only if they're extremely sick uh, uh, and they have risk factors for, uh, uh, you know, multidrug resistant organisms or uh, uh, MRSA or, or Pseudomonas, uh, then you give them the advanced antibiotics beyond uh, sort of the macrolide and the cephalosporin, all right? So, you know, I think this sort of underscores sort of what you see empirically. You know, this should seem really intuitive to the outpatient pneumonia regimens and the inpatient pneumonia or the ICU regimens, but it's sort of codified here in the ATS and IDSA uh, guidelines, so feel free to look at that uh, to sort of solidify that. All right, does that all sort of make sense? Yeah, okay. Sure, guys. The Emergency Medical Minute would like to thank our sponsor, Swedish Medical Center, for helping fund our nonprofit organization and make this podcast possible. Donations are essential to our organization to cover operational costs and fund the creation of our online courses offering AMA, PRA, Category 1 credits. So if you enjoy our show, and if you're able to make a one-time or recurring donation towards our organization, any amount is helpful. Please click the link in our show notes to make a donation. Thank you for listening.